makes me sad, girl. Yeah, it brings me down. All right, tossing and turning and freezing and burning and crying all through the night. Oh, Julie, 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 do you love me? Julie, 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 do you care? Julie, Julie, are you thinking of me? Julie, Julie, will you still be there? We had so much fun together. I was sure that you were mine, but leaving you, baby, is driving me crazy. It's got me wondering all the time. podcast number 287 entitled Julie Do You Love Me and uh, for the aficionados out there um, while the podcast is of a core and central theme as far as I'm concerned the song is by Bobby Sherman from the late spring of 1970 and is sort of dumb you know what I mean like a lot of Bobby Sherman tunes it's kind of dumb but it's also both catchy and absolutely true Julie Do You Love Me I'm not sure and uh, I'm in a terrible way until I know for sure. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the nature of love. And this is of uh, great importance because, uh, as I think I said in the last cast, the uh, one's attention was utterly gripped by the voiceover of the character in the first section of the Russian version of War and Peace, uh, a text or a section of it that is lifted perfectly and beautifully and explicitly from the novel, where the first and very young wife of Prince Andre is dying after giving birth to her son, and she dies. And as she dies, you hear her words, and they are the words of this young woman's essential self, who has been terribly, uh, mercilessly, and unfeelingly um, kind of abandoned in the very um, noble but very cold house of her father-in-law. And as she dies, she says these words, which Tolstoy, in sort of a death of Ivan Illich way, so penetrating, she says, I loved you all. All I wanted to do was love you all. Why did you treat me this way? It's very simple. It's very almost epigrammatic. I loved you all. Why did you treat me this way? And those are her dying words. Those are her inward self. And it struck me as I listened to it that so many people 
you know, until they come to some kind of crisis, don't know where they actually stand. Uh, so many uh, individuals, until we reach a kind of catastrophic crisis point, and almost everyone does, once or twice in their life, reach a kind of place of stalemate, <clears throat> or a place where there are seem to be no options, or where the boom has fallen, or where the, what does Magwitch say in Great Expectations? When I was under a cloud, when something really, really um, profoundly upsetting happens as the failed elopement of Natasha in the second section of War and Peace constitutes for her, the something takes place in which the core um, um, foundations of one's life are knocked away to, re to reveal the central truth of one's actual attitude and mental health and perspective and idea about oneself, who one is. And when um, Bobby Sherman says it so plainly in sort of a dumb but nevertheless memorable way, Julie, do you love me? That's the real question, because she dies, this young woman in War and Peace, without that being answered. And I thought about that a lot recently. Um, I'll tell you where it really comes out. <clears throat> I'm constantly hearing... Um, calls to love as Jesus loved, uh, these, the way of love, uh, a lot of uh, talk that I get from religious, um, formal religious sources, not the sermons that I hear, because we hear John Zoll, or we hear Stu Shelby, or we hear Paula White, and those sermons never uh, go in this direction. But almost everything I hear, I was recently in a situation where I heard all sorts of um, strong religious sentiments from leading people in uh, mainstream uh, American Christianity, and they all basically boil down to the the um, role of the church is to love as Jesus loved. <clears throat> we are to love uh, those in the world, especially the impoverished, the displaced, the uh, marginalized, the excluded, in the way that Jesus loved uh, those persons, which he did, and it's a wonderful um, call, and a call that is um, absolutely um, accurate in its uh, desires and hopes and uh, exemplary demonstration of the love of Jesus Christ himself. But, 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 as I listen to these calls, they seem to go into thin air because they are not rooted in a prior love. And this is a point that we make often, but it really has to be, it cannot be stated more um, forcefully, because it needs to be stated, because until you yourself have experienced the love of God, i.e. the love of graceful loving, almost always through another person who's inspired for some reason to love you, non-rationally, but nevertheless, truly, in your cloud or when you are in a really bad place, until you have experienced that and felt it yourself, um, calls to love others that way basically are exhausting. They go against nature and they are exhausting, and they ultimately run out of gas and they cause a kind of burnout. And that's my experience of the liberal church, and I've grown up in it my entire life, that legitimate calls to love in a Christ-like manner, which are entirely um, appropriate, uh, run out of gas and become exhausted unless there's been a prior experience of the love for you when you were feeling marginalized, dispossessed, and uh, um, profoundly unentitled and deeply defeated and totally lost and perhaps utterly unloved and even scorned and made a mockery of. And that's really where religion begins. It begins in the place of... of uh, of uh, utter and uh, complete um, bereftness and uh, not the other way around. I had this experience so clearly. I, I became suddenly very ill recently. <clears throat> um, I guess from a human point of view, I don't 
get sick very often. I just don't for reasons that are entirely arbitrary, but they, they, they simply have allowed me to basically function um, as a healthy person, bodily, <laughs> bodily that is, almost all the time. And I became suddenly extremely sick uh, in the middle of the night and uh, wondered suddenly whether this might be something really severe. And it certainly felt that way, and it has had a few side effects. And I, don't worry, I'm fine. But nevertheless, it was major in because of its unusual character. And I suddenly, I just had this overwhelming thought, you know, all that I really need at this moment is to be loved. Fortunately, I have a wonderful, loving wife, Mary. But nevertheless, the thought occurred to me, if I couldn't be loved at this moment, if I weren't utterly um, certain of love at this moment, nothing else would matter. And uh, uh, then the thought occurred to me, well... No wonder, um, because in 1 John 4, verse 19, a signature text for the uh, property of love that we regard as uh, Christian, um, the uh, inspired writer declares, we love because he first loved us. And that's a, a, a signature rubric that is absolutely essential, and I'm sure you agree with me, but I want to underline it. You cannot love others unless... You have been loved first. The love that you have for others, unless it is rooted in a prior love, to quote Stevie Winwood, but in a higher prior love, usually almost always as embodied in a particular human being when you were going through a bad, bad time, until you've been loved that way, your love for others is going to be basically an effort or a work rather than a response and a natural easy, normal thing. So if the answer to Julie, do you love me, is no, I do not love you. This is Julie speaking, and I do not love you. Well, then, ah, you, you're not going to, that's no, you're not going to be much in life. You're going to be basically um, floating on a turgid sea, uh, getting ready to die because there is nothing to inspire you. I felt this so strongly because I'm in a denomination often where or at least in a denominational context most of my life, where, again, the calls to love are unceasing. The calls to love as Christ loved the world are unceasing. But I myself have not gotten very much love from those people. I mean, the very people who are constantly uh, telling us to love one another have treated me, I'm being purely subjective here, the, the subjectivity of it is, no, I've been treated terribly, I've been unloved, I've been excluded. Uh, you know, if you had a certain kind of theology or a certain kind of lingo or you had certain friends or you had a certain way of putting your theology or you were labeled as this, that, or the other thing, and usually there was that terrible, terrible, dreaded word, evangelical, which was like being told you were, you know, you had rabies, um, the uh, leprosy, uh, then you weren't loved at all. Um, and then I thought of that song by Three Dog Night that's from Hair. I think it's called Easy to Be Hard. Uh, how can people be so heartless, especially when you need a friend, and I need a friend. And then the, the inspired writer of Hair, I believe the lyricist was a the brother of a very saintly Roman Catholic clergyman in Pittsburgh, and I think he was a Christian, a struggling, but really struggling with the gospel Christian. And he says about those who don't love, he said, 
how, how can you be so heartly, especially those who care about social injustice? You care about the bleeding crowd, but you don't care about me because I need a friend. You care about the bleeding crowd, but not a friend. I think I've told you before about the instance uh, came to roost recently because I was with some people who knew the directly the person that was in my mind at the time, um, a, 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 a young lady whom I had known in um, in. Uh, prep school, independent school, and then I was terribly interested in her in college, and I pled in front of Lowell House at Harvard, pled with a, a friend of mine from an unnamed prep school who uh, had a Volkswagen bus, and he we all envied him because he, he had wheels, and um, it was my junior year, spring of my junior year at Harvard, and, and uh, I was just desperate to go see this girl because we'd had a sort of a fight over the phone and things weren't right over the phone, and, and I couldn't go, going down to the central square and getting the Peter Pan bus to wherever she was in college was um, too long, and I pled with him. Now, he was the leading left-wing, he was a leading left-wing hippie from Stanford, although he was visiting friends where we were, and he was a leading figure. He used to get up in the morning and throw stones at the Board of Trustees every Thursday, months a month. Uh, he was right out of a, um, you know, he was right out of that wonderful song, uh, you know, that movie with Jeff, whatever, Goldblum, about that era of those people. And he and I pled, and I said, so-and-so, please, can you, would you mind terribly just giving me a quick ride out there? I'll come back. I'll get back. But I just have got to get out there. And he says, no. I said, no, I won't, Paul. I have other better things to do. I, I just can't do it. I won't do it now. I've got other things I need to do, i.e., I have to go to my demonstration or I have to go do placards that says U.S. out of Southeast Asia, butchers out of Harvard now or whatever it was. Uh, and, and he said, no, I won't. And I've, I'll never, I've never forgotten that. It disillusioned me at the deepest level. I mean, here's this guy who's talking, you know, tiptoe through the tulips. He's putting daffodils in the guns of National Guardsmen on Massachusetts Avenue, and and yet here he's an old friend of mine I've known for a while, and we have so much in common and associations and experiences, and he he won't take me out when I'm desperate, but he's going to go and do his placards so he can throw stones at the board of overseers, and I thought to myself, my gosh, what is Julie? Julie, do you love me? And it disillusioned me forever about. Uh, social justice warriors because they didn't love me. I mean, they loved every, I mean, that may be very selfish. You may say, well, that's not important. Why should he, what claim did you have on him? Well, only friendship, but I had a severe need, a deeply perceived and felt need. And I thought about this weekend because I was with some people who were classmates of the person whom I was interested in at that point at another college. And oh my gosh, it came back to me, but how disappointed I was. And I sort of never wanted to talk to one of these people again as long as I lived. And I spent my whole life in Christianity with people who were always telling everybody else to do the Jesus way, but in their own personal lives, they can be positively the worst. Somebody said, had been in a creative writing program at Yale that I know, and um, he said that, you know, it was, uh, they were all exalted and inspired people, but their personal lives, he said, the, 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 the debauchery of the personal lives of the, of the teachers and teaching assistants and graduate students in this particular field were just beyond belief self-serving, beyond belief 
destructive and ends justify the means. And so that's made me skeptical. But it's proper skepticism because if if the love if the love for others is not rooted in a pre prior love to oneself, forget about it. And then later on, when I was loved myself in a time of tremendous um, inner turmoil, you know, you all go through these points in your adolescence that become sort of decisive. They're decisive. What's the word there? Crucibles of where you end up and the path you finally take. And in a time of tremendous distress uh, of Christian people did reach out to me. They spoke a language I had never heard and would never normally have spoken, and they seemed to be quoting authors I'd never heard of, but they, nonetheless, they love me. And what what is there beyond that? Greater love hath no man. But the point is, um, we love because he first loved us. And I just want to emphasize that. I want to emphasize that with, um, with all my heart, um, that the power of the love uh, that is given when you're in a bad way is um, decisive. Now we're going to close with a, yeah, give it a minute, uh, there's sort of a funny intro, we're going to close with Glenn Campbell uh, giving a very raspy and overly loud, almost crass sounding intro to a song that he's going to sing by Jimmy Webb called Ocean in His Eyes. And this this is about, uh, this uh, is a quite moving song um, about a, a man who's been um, rejected by his love and he's crashed and burned. He's completely and totally rejected. And it's a very moving song because when you are rejected, there's nothing. You're, it's, you crash and burn. When you are loved at a time of vulnerability, you fly and um, bloom and you, like a butterfly, you come out of your chrysalis and it's the most important thing that ever happens to you, bar none. The same is true in Christianity and in religion and it's true in personal life. But we're going to end with this uh, quite... Um, just give it, let the intro go. It's a bit of a pause at first. Wait the silence, then listen to Glenn Campbell's rasping voice, but then listen to the song, and especially the images of decline and fall based upon love not received as over against the power which you and I know from First John 4 of love that is received. Thank you very much. For an average kind of writer, you write a song about a guy crying, we just say, you know, the guy cried. But if you're a poet like Jimmy Webb, you say it a little different, like ocean in his eyes. Say you love me, but I'm not sure you know just what you mean.
kite is small.